You're listening to a sermon podcast from Sovereign Grace Church in Bradford, Ontario. For more info, visit sovgracechurch.ca. I want to open God's word with you. And what we're going to be looking at specifically is what motivates my wife and I uh, to uproot our family and to go to the Middle East to share the gospel. And that is that God is on mission for us, for the human race. God, we have rebelled against him and God has set his heart upon us and he has sent his son into the world on mission to seek and to save the lost. And that's really what Christmas is all about. Uh, we see God on mission through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Advent is a wonderful opportunity for us to refresh ourselves and to renew our minds in the fact that God loves us and that God wants us to go out and to proclaim the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. And so this morning's preaching text, as we remind ourselves of the mission of God and we link it to our celebration of Christmas in the Advent season, I want to take us into the book of Isaiah. Would you open to the book of Isaiah, chapter 49? And as you're looking for your spot, would you please stand? Isaiah, chapter 49. About halfway through the Old Testament, you'll find Isaiah. It's a big book, so find Isaiah before Jeremiah. And we're in chapter 49. This is one of four servant songs in the book of Isaiah. These servant songs are prophecies of the life and mission of Jesus Christ. This is the word of God. Isaiah 49, verse 1. Listen to me, O coastlands. And give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing and for vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I'm honored in the eyes of the Lord. My God has become my strength. And so he says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant, to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations. And my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, poured by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. The Word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look to this ancient text that you breathed forth through your servant Isaiah, I pray that you would help us to see and to know Christ and the mission of Christ and how we fit into Christ and to his mission. I pray that you would help me to be clear and concise for your glorification and for the building up of this church. I thank you for giving me the strength to preach, 
Now I pray by your Holy Spirit that you would soften our hearts, open our ears, and ready us to receive the explanation of your word. I pray, Lord, as we do this, that you would renew our commitment to your mission to seek and to save the lost, even unto the ends of the earth. Pray this in the name of your servant, our God and our King, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. I love this text. One of the challenges, though, to go for going to a text like this is it's in the bit, middle of the book of Isaiah. And the book of Isaiah is a big book. It's a complex book. It's a rich book. Uh, but it does require a little bit of context. There's one historical event that we have to be aware of if this text is going to make any sense to us. And that is this event. In 586 B.C., so that's almost 600 years before the birth of Christ. The Babylonians surrounded Jerusalem and they destroyed the city and they tore down the king's palace and they tore down the temple and they killed most of the people. And of all of the people of Israel, only 4,600 people were left alive. And those people were carried away to Babylon, which is in modern day Iraq, in three waves. Isaiah the prophet writing some 150 years before the event prophesied that event and now he's writing in advance to the people who are sitting in exile. So it's hard for us to imagine our city being destroyed, most of our friends and family being killed and then us being taken to a faraway place where we don't speak their language but that's what happened to the people for whom this was originally written. Now, there's a broader audience to the book of Isaiah, but if you're sitting in exile and you are given a 150-year-old book and that book prophesies that you would go into exile and that you would be delivered from exile, you'd be at the front of your seat. You'd be listening with open ears. And that's my prayer for us this morning, that we could somehow get ourselves into that place you see, uh, chapters 1 through four, uh, 39 in the book of Isaiah are prophesying that Israel would continue to sin, they would not repent, God would send his curses, he would judge them, and they would be carried off into exile. So by the time you get to the end of Isaiah chapter 39, we expect Israel will be in exile. Now there are 4,600 people from Jerusalem sitting in exile. Then the prophet does this radical shift for chapters 40 through 55. And if chapters 1 through 39 were all about destruction and judgment, now that we get to chapter 40, for, chapter 40, every one of our gospels starts with Isaiah 40, a voice crying in the wilderness makes straight a path in the wilderness for our God. It's on the lips of John the Baptist. And from chapter 40 through 55, we, we get these beautiful prophecies of hope, of deliverance, of salvation. That's where we find our text, right in the middle of this, this part of Isaiah's prophecy about salvation. Now chapters 40 through 55 subdivide into two major groups as well. So you could cut this part of the book into half. And this also is important for us. In chapters 40 through 48, the main message of those chapters is that God will deliver his people from captivity in Babylon just as he had delivered them from slavery in Egypt. And so the motif of Exodus is there, that Exodus where God delivered his people by Moses from slavery in Egypt. God, through the prophet, begins to talk about a second Exodus. Only this time he's going to use a Persian king by the name of Cyrus to lead his people out of captivity in Babylon. But then we get to chapters 49 through 55, and you'll remember that our passage is 49, verse 1 through 7. This is, our, our passage is right at the beginning of this section, 
And what the prophet begins to ruminate on is that if God delivers his people from Babylon, just as he had delivered them from Egypt, they are no further ahead than they had been when they came into the promised land the first time. They would fall back into sin, they would fall back into idolatry, and God would have to punish them again. So chapters 49 through 55 in Isaiah are about a deeper deliverance, a deeper exodus. And you still get all of the, the, the imagery of the exodus, and yet God says, I need to deliver you from slavery to sin. Uh, my people need to be delivered from their, their sin nature. Otherwise, we'll just continually delivering you from, e from Egypt, from Babylon. Where next? From Assyria, maybe? No, God says, I need to get to the root of the problem, and that's your sin. And that's what chapters 49 through 55 are all about. So that's where we come in. Now, if you're sitting in Babylon and you open the book of Isaiah and you see all of these things that I've just painted for you, what is it about our passage this morning that jumps out at you? Let me suggest to you three things, and we're gonna go through these three things, and then there's a fourth observation I want to make after we take a look at our text. The three things that would jump out at you if you were sitting in Babylon is you would say, why is it all of a sudden that Isaiah is prophesying not only to Israel, but also to the nations? We're going to see that in our text. Secondly, you would begin to know, and as you read the whole book of Isaiah, it would become more clear, you would begin to see that this is a prophecy about the birth of a coming Messiah. The servant in this passage is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. You wouldn't know that when you're sitting in Babylon, but you know this is the beginning of their reflection on the coming of a Messiah. The third thing that you would notice is that this is a prophecy about the mission of the Messiah. The Messiah is coming and he has something in particular to do. So let's uh, go through and take a look at these three things. The first thing that I said you would notice if you're sitting in Babylon is that this is a prophecy not only for Israel, but this is also a, a prophecy for the nations. And that's how we know that there's a clean break here from chapters 40 through 48 because 40 through 48 is really focused in on the remnant of Israel sitting in Babylon and the promise that they'll be delivered from their captivity. But now in Isaiah 49 verse one, the first half, take a look at what it says. Listen to me, O coastlands. Give attention, you peoples from afar. All of a sudden, we've, we've gone into totally new territory. Uh, th this is a prophecy not just for Israel, but for the people who live on the coastlands. If you know anything about Israelites, they were landlubbers. They, they were landlocked people. They were not seagoers. So the coastlands to them was like the end of the earth. So if you're talking to people who live out in those islands, out in the sea, you're, you're looking to the west and the Mediterranean, the people from Cyprus and beyond. You're, you're thinking about people from the ends of the earth. And that's explicit there in the second part. Give attention to this prophecy, you peoples from afar, you Gentiles, people like us. This is a prophecy in the middle of the Old Testament that is explicitly for non-Jews. It's for you and for me. That would strike you if you're a Jew sitting in Babylon, right in the middle of your sacred scriptures, a prophecy that extends to the nations. Secondly, this is a prophecy about the birth of a coming Messiah. And we see this in the rest of verse one and verse two. Isaiah has called the peoples, the peoples, the, the Gentiles, the, uh, all of the nations of the earth to pay attention, give ear to this because there's good news in this, in this prophecy for you. And the good news is the birth of a Messiah, a servant for Israel. And in, in these verses, verse 1b through the end of 2, this is Christmas. This is, this is a promise of the incarnation that we celebrate through the Advent season. There are two aspects that I want us to consider here as I read this to you. I'm going to tell you these two aspects and I'll read it again for you. 
The servant, which is the Messiah, identified here is a particular human being. This is not a generic, you know, we need someone like this. This is a specific prediction that there will be an individual born to a woman. Secondly, this servant to be born comes with the very power of the Lord. This is no mere mortal. This is not a human being like any other human being. He is described and associated with the Lord in a way that is not common to the rest of the human race. Take a look at it. Isaiah 49, halfway through verse one to the end of verse two. Notice also, before I read this, this is put in the, in the mouth of Jesus himself in the first person. And before I read this, you might ask, well, how do we know that this is Jesus and not the prophet Isaiah? There are many reasons I don't have time to get into. One of them being that this is one of four servant songs, which can only be about the Messiah, which is Christ. And also, as we get further on in this prophecy alone, uh, this servant is called Israel, and he's going to turn Israel and the nations back Now, Isaiah played a part of that through his prophecy, but it's the Christ alone who has done that. So this is coming from the mouth of the servant himself, speaking through the prophet. 49, verse one, halfway through. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow in his quiver, He hid me away. The servant is a particular human being. What do I mean by particular? Unique, identified, individual. This is a historic person to be born. We see this because the servant says, the Lord has called me. He has named my name. Uh, very, very intimate language. I am, I am a particular person with a name. Uh, when I come, you will be able to identify me with a name that the Lord has given to me. It's ambiguous here, written 700 years before this servant was born. But now, on the other side of the birth of Christ, we know that the name given is Jesus. And God named Jesus He sent his angel to tell Joseph, make sure that this baby is named Jesus in keeping with this prophecy. And what is the name Jesus? What does it mean? It means the Lord saves. I want you to name my servant, the Lord saves. Secondly, not only is this individual a particular unique person who can be named We know that he is a human being. This is not about an angel. This is not about God acting as God from heaven. This is about a human being that has come into the world to to do what God has called him and and, uh, uh, prophesied that he would do. And we see that this servant is to be born like all human beings. He is born from the womb. The Lord has called me from the womb from the body of my mother. So this servant, the Lord saves, Jesus, is going to be born of a woman. Jesus is a man. He's still a man, by the way. He, he measures in at somewhere between five and seven feet tall. And he was crucified and he was raised from the dead and he ascended to heaven where he's still a man. The servant of the Lord is fully human as prophesied. Jesus is a man. He is the son of a woman, the son of Mary. What I love about uh, this prophecy is it's been fulfilled for us. And we read about that in Matthew's gospel. The very first thing that we read about Jesus in the New Testament are these verses. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 21. Now the birth of Jesus, the Messiah took place in this way. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. 
And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered those things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. The Lord saves, for he will save his people from their sins. Everything prophesied in Isaiah 49, verses 1 and 2, fulfilled in Matthew 1. He's named, he's born of a woman. So this servant is a particular human being, but this servant is also the very power of the Lord. As I read through, you'll see that uh, (laughs) this servant is described in a way that you just can't describe the average person this way. In in verse 2, We read this, he made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. Very first thing we learn about this servant to be born is that there's something about his mouth. He has made, the Lord has made his mouth like a sharp sword, a two-edged sword. There's a focus on his words then. There's something about this servant that is associated with the word of God. And if you know Israel's tradition, which is the Christian tradition that God created by his word and the word of his servant is what is in focus here. The servant, we learn, is the very word of God. He he is the one who created the universe. This servant to come speaks for God. This servant to come is the word of God. And the word of God is as sharp as a two-edged sword, we read in Hebrews. And his servant has this sword coming from his mouth. We also find out that his He is like a polished arrow. You can just picture God taking an arrow out of his quiver, taking it to his bow and ready to shoot it. So the servant's words are weapons. The weaponry of a sword gives the idea of close hand-to-hand combat. The the weapon of an arrow gives you the sense of, of combat from afar. And these two weapons together show the omnipotence of the servant. Uh, this is a servant that when wielded by God, and we know that he is God himself, uh, but the, the weaponry in the hand of God is all-powerful for both close and far combat. The servant also pre-existed his conception in the womb of his mother. This is subtle, and if this was the only passage in the Bible that talks about the the eternal existence of the pre-incarnate Christ, it would be a hard case to make. But knowing that Christ is a total God, truly God from eternity past to eternity future, and when we look at this verse, we see his pre-existence here. What does it say? In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. In the quiver, he hid me away until the fullness of time. When God unsheathed his sword, when God drew forth his arrow, and the birth of this servant who is named Jesus by God, born of a woman, is like a sword unsheathed, like an arrow drawn from a quiver. Meaning the short sword always existed in the sheath and the, and the arrow always existed in the quiver, but now God has drawn these weapons and through the birth of his servant, the sword has been unsheathed and the arrow has been taken from the quiver and God is ready to do battle. Do battle against what? Do battle against whom? If we were to read all of Isaiah 49 through 55, it's sin and death. That the servant is God's weapon against sin and death. And at the birth of his servant, what God declares is, my sword has been drawn, my arrow is ready. I am ready to do battle against sin and death. Praise be to God. That's, that's Christmas. It's the divine warrior 
come into the world as a sword and an arrow to battle sin and death on our behalf, to enact the deeper deliverance that Israel needs and that the nations to the coastlands need to be delivered from slavery to sin, which brings death. And what do we read in uh, 1 Corinthians 15? The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And make no mistake, it may not seem like it today in a world plagued by COVID-19. Or or perhaps you have recently had to say goodbye to a loved one who, who has died. Doesn't seem like God has come to do battle against sin and death, but he has. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. I love this servant song, this Christmas hymn, because if the first part about a particular human being is fulfilled at the very initial introduction of Christ, we see all of the imagery of verse two at the final portrait of Christ given to us in the Bible, Revelation 19. And we're told that Christ will return to bring to fulfillment his mission, to bring it to completion And in Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16, we're told that the sword of God, the arrow of God will return to conquer. And as I read this, just think of the imagery of words, the sword from the mouth, the weapon of God, the conquering divine warrior on our behalf. Revelation 19, verse 11, I saw heaven open and behold, a white horse And the one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and he makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's the name, which is prophesied. Verse 13, he's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, just as Isaiah prophesied, with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Who was it that was born to a woman in Bethlehem on that Christmas night? The Lord of Lords and the King of Kings, the one with the sharp sword coming from his mouth, the one who is coming to do battle against sin and death, the servant of the Lord. And at Christmas, all nations, that's what we read in verse one, all nations are invited to celebrate that like a sword that is finally unsheathed or like an arrow that is finally drawn from its quiver, the word of God was revealed to the world when the word became flesh. So the imagery so far has been paradoxical. On the one hand, the servant is a baby. On the other hand, the servant is the word of God who is like a sharp sword or an arrow. And the portrait that we saw in Revelation, that's the same one that was born to Mary and laid in a manger. The same one that was nailed to a cross. The same one that was raised from the dead. The servant of the Lord who will return for us and fight for us. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Third, this is a prophecy about the mission of the Messiah. The section, uh, verses three through seven, is structured as a dialogue between the Lord and his servant. Now what we know, which maybe isn't entirely clear from this passage, but we know that the Lord and his servant uh, are two persons of one triune God. And so what we have here is a dialogue of God speaking to God, of the Father speaking to his Son, about the Lord speaking to his servant. And so we get an inner glimpse of the life of God, the the inner dialogue, the counsel of God with God. And it begins with a statement from the Father to the Son. We're told very simply in verse three, 
that the mission of the servant, the mission of the son is to glorify the father. And is that exactly what Jesus said? I have come to do my father's will and to glorify him. And isn't that what he prays for in John 17? I have glorified your name. Now glorify me with you as I was with you from the beginning. And and, and so God sends forth God as his servant to glorify God. And that's exactly what we see in verse three. And he, that is the father, said to me, the son, you are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. That's why this has to be Jesus. It is only in Christ that the Father has been glorified fully. Uh, Jesus did what Israel failed to do, what Israel was unable to do, what Isaiah never did, which is to glorify the Father truly and perfectly. Uh, You are my son, with you I am well pleased. In you I am glorified. And that's the mission of the Son, if you really want to put it in its biggest category. What is the mission of Jesus Christ? It's to glorify the Father. What is the mission of the church, which belongs to Christ, to glorify the Father? How is a servant going to glorify the Father? Is he just going to be born? Is that that what it is? No, we know that he has work to do. That work is described for us in verse 5. We're told in verse five, now the Lord says, meaning the father says, and now the the servant is reflecting on who the Lord is, who the father is in relationship to him. And Christ, through the prophet Isaiah, says this, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant. The father sent the son. And why did he form me in my mother's womb to be his servant? To bring Jacob back to him. Jacob being another name for the nation of Israel. That Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has become my strength. Why was Jesus born? To continue what God started all the way back with Abraham. We see it even in in today's children's lesson with John. John was to start the work of turning uh, the the hearts of, of the people back to the Lord to prepare a way for Jesus to come and to return Israel back to the Father. Reflecting on this, as if at the end of his life, though, the servant of this song, Jesus, reflects on his life and he concludes two things. He says, it seems like I've failed to accomplish this mission. Why would he say that? Because he's rejected by Israel. Not all Jews, but he's rejected by the nation. So did he return Israel to the Father? He continues, he says, though it seems like I have failed, I trust that God's will be done, that he will judge my work and he will reward me and my work and Israel will be returned through what I have done. Take a look at verse four. But I said, this is the servant, Jesus, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing and for vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. So you see the two there. You can almost see him on the cross wondering, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Have I failed to glorify you? If I failed to return the nation to you because they have crucified me. And though it says the king of the Jews above my head, they don't know who I am. They have not returned to you. Now we also know that Jesus knew that it was through his passion that he would ultimately bring about the returning of Israel. But that is yet to be fulfilled. Israel has yet to return to God en masse as a nation, but that will be fulfilled. God has promised We're not given much information to know why it seems as though the servant would say that his mission has failed, but the fourth of four servant songs in Isaiah 53, we get description of what it means to be the servant of the Lord. And I'm not gonna read the whole thing, but let me just give you a taste of the prophetic uh, promise of the crucifixion of Christ and how it is through the suffering of the servant that he would achieve his mission. 
So in Isaiah 53, verses three and six, we read this. He, that is the servant, prophesied in Isaiah 49, was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with much grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. We esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Going down to verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He wasn't rejected. This was the the will of God, the eternal counsel of God, to crush him, to put him to grief. And when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. There's a prophecy of resurrection. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand and out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be counted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. Remember, we're in Isaiah 49 through 55 and the servant becomes the paschal lamb. He is, he is uh, if we go back to Exodus and all that imagery of being delivered from slavery in Egypt and then Isaiah 40 through 48 and being delivered uh, from captivity in Babylon and then that's not enough. We need a deeper Exodus to deliver us from sin and death. And the servant will do this. But the servant is the lamb, the Passover lamb that dies and his blood grants Passover from the wrath of God and is through his death that this deeper deliverance for Israel and the nations will be accomplished. My servant's going to be born of a woman and his name is Jesus. And so the father reassures his servant In verses six and seven, all this will come to pass and the deeper deliverance will be brought about by you, my servant. I love these verses. The father says to the son 700 years before the incarnation through the prophet Isaiah, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth, which is why Isaiah said, listen to this, you peoples from afar. Listen to this, you coastlands. This is good news for all of us. It's too small a thing for God to save Israel. He's gonna save us all if we but put our faith in his servant. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One. That is, the Redeemer of Israel and Israel's Holy One. To His servant, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Your rejection by Israel, if I could just insert here from elsewhere, your rejection by Israel is necessary for the saving of the nations. That's the great mystery of Christ given to us in Romans 9 through 11. That in Israel's rejection, the gospel goes forth to the Gentiles. And so you have not labored in vain. You see, the father is responding to that lament by his servant, the son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Have I labored in vain? Israel has rejected me and in rejecting me, rejected you. And the father, 700 years before Jesus was born, says, it has to be this way. Because of your rejection by Israel, because you're deeply despised and abhorred by the nation of Israel, because of that, kings... Gentile kings will see what you've done and they will rise. They'll rise to worship you and in worshiping you, worship me and they will be raised from the dead and princes shall prostrate themselves before you and if before you, before me. This is because of the Lord who is faithful Faithful to his 
purposes, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Listen to this, peoples from afar, you Gentiles from the coastlands here in Bradford, Ontario. It's too small a thing for God to save Israel alone. And so the gospel needs to go to you and from you to the far reaches of the earth because God wants to save people from every tribe and language and people and nation to worship him through the Son. In some then, foreseeing Jerusalem's destruction and Judah's exile in Babylon, Isaiah wrote a book of prophecy 700 years before Jesus was born. This is 2,700 years ago. We are reading ancient literature preserved for us by God that is almost 3,000 years old. And from Isaiah 40 to 48, God promised a second exodus for Israel from Babylon. But then in chapters 49 through 55, he says, look, we need to do more than that. We need more than exodus from Egypt. We need more than an exodus from Babylon. We need a deliverance, an exodus from sin and death. And in 49.1, God invites the nations into this greater deliverance. In 49.2, God declares that this greater deliverance will be done by his servant, a Messiah to be born by a woman and named by God to be his weapons to defeat sin and death. The, the sword of God and the arrow of God, the word of God. And then in verses three through seven, God promises what appears to be the servant's failure is actually the very means by which God will bring about this deeper deliverance from sin and death. This is the means by which God will deliver Israel and the nations, the death, crucifixion of his servant. This passage, therefore, introduces the promise that God will deliver Israel and the nations from, th from sin through the mission of his servant. Like an unsheathed sword or a drawn arrow, the servant will come into the world through the birth of a woman. And God will use his sword and arrow to defeat the powers of sin and death. And this is really what Christmas is all about. We cannot isolate the mission of God from the birth of his servant. Which brings us to our final point. Reflecting on this text, the Apostle Paul saw a connection between Christmas and the mission of the church. In Acts 13, verses 44 through 49, Paul's confronted as he's on his missionary journeys to seek and to save the lost on behalf of Christ. And he said, Luke writes this, the next Sabbath... Almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and they began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us saying, and then he Paul quotes Isaiah 49.6 from our text. I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. So to... To understand this text, we have to go into the mind of Paul, and Paul, Paul understood his life in terms of the extension of the mission of the servant of God. Paul appropriates Isaiah 49.6, and he applies it to Christian missions. In, in Isaiah, the you, I have appointed you to be a light to the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. There is no question that the you there is in the first person singular or second person singular, sorry, meaning that the father is speaking to the servant, to this, his son, the Lord Jesus. Now, Paul takes a, a conversation between the father and the son, and he says that somehow God is also speaking to him, to Paul. But Paul doesn't mean that the father is speaking only to him. He's saying the father is speaking to the church. And so Paul makes the you, meaning from father to son, a corporate you, 
a plural you, to the church. The Father now is speaking to his church. I am sending you, church, to be a light to the Gentiles. Is Paul being responsible with the text? Can we use Isaiah 49 this way? Yes. We know this because the servant has commissioned his church to continue his mission in the world. He achieved our salvation by crucifixion and resurrection, but then he ascended to heaven. And as he was ascending to heaven in Roman, or sorry, Acts 1, verses 6 through 9, we read this. It is not for you, disciples, this is Jesus speaking, to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority to establish his kingdom in full. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, just as it was prophesied in Isaiah 49. So the servant who achieves our salvation has commissioned us to continue his mission into the world, the mission prophesied by Isaiah in Isaiah 49. Missions, therefore, is a continuation of the ancient mission of God. The servant's mission, which began at Christmas 2,000 years ago when he was born into the world, is still unfolding in the world today. And here's the good news. This is what's really exciting. We get to be a part of this. This is not an ancient story to be put on the shelf. This is not an old, dusty history that we just are thankful for. We are invited into the mission of God to continue forward the mission of God through his servant. And now because we are the very body of Christ and he is our head, we share in his mission to the world. We are literally his hands and his feet. We are commissioned by the servant, the son of God, the word of God, Jesus, to go on his behalf. Go to the coastlands and to the ends of the earth. Go as a light for the nations. Go that God's salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And therefore, we must go as a people. And I believe that every Christian is called to do two things in life. We all must go. For some of us, that's down the street. It's into the local school. It's in our places of work. But we must go and proclaim the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ to your extended family. Wherever you have an opportunity to share the gospel, go and share the good news of salvation in the Son of God. But then all of us must also send So for those of you who are called to stay here, you must send people where the gospel has not yet gone. Every one of us must go and send. And we ourselves, as we go to Dubai, you have an opportunity to send us and we will go. But once we arrive in Dubai, we are our whole purpose for being there is to equip people and then to send them further into the frontier, to to, to take them or to send them where the gospel has not yet gone, to send them where there are no churches. And so we continue to do this until every person on planet earth has heard the gospel and has an opportunity to be saved. We are entirely capable as a church a global church, to ensure that every person on planet Earth hears the gospel in our lifetime. We could do this uh, before 2030. I am convinced of it. If Coca-Cola can get a can of Coke into anyone's hand anywhere on the Earth, can we not get the good news of salvation and death defeated to every person on Earth? If McDonald's can get a Happy Meal into the lap of any child anywhere on the earth, and believe you me, they can, can we not deliver the good news that God has sent forth his servant, born of a woman? His name is the Lord Saves. And he died in the place of sinners so that we might be raised from the dead and live forever? Can we not get the bread of life 
in place of a happy meal to people who are perishing anywhere in the world. I, I, I am convinced it's not a question of whether or not we as a church have the capacity. The question is, do we have the will? Is our vision of our lives and the mission of God broad enough to say, I want to be a part of that. In some way, God, help me to discern what, what can I do. Not everyone needs to go to a foreign country, but we all, every Christian individual, every Christian family, every local church needs to be a part of taking the gospel further into the frontier so that every ear can hear that Jesus Christ is Lord and have an opportunity to bow their knee in faith. This Christmas then, I invite you to recommit to continuing the mission of God, to, to continue the mission of the servant of the Lord, the Son of God, the Word of God made flesh, Jesus Christ, our God and our King. We all must go and we all must send until everyone has heard the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. And may that be our gift to the world. I want to thank you for being here with me today and inviting me to be here. Uh, it's been an honor to open this sacred text and to show you the great hope we have in Christ. Would you pray with me? Oh God, I thank you that 2,700 years ago, you prophesied that you would send a servant like an unsheathed sword or a drawn arrow from your quiver to battle sin and death. And so you have done in the person of Jesus Christ. And now we are his body commissioned by him to go into the world as his witnesses to continue this same mission to seek and to save the lost. Lord, help each one of us to discern what our role is in this mission and then grant us great joy as we do our part in ensuring that everyone has an opportunity to, to be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We thank you, Lord. But how will they call on, their on his name if they haven't heard of his name? And how will they hear unless someone preaches? And how will someone preach unless someone is sent? God, make us ready to go and ready us to send for the salvation of countless multitudes. In your name we pray, amen.